what will the resurrection body be like? And he treats some of these questions with great respect. Questions that come from, I think, his congregation, right? Ordinary Christians who are saying, well, you know, what happens to someone who dies at sea and is eaten by sharks? Or what happens to their body? And Augustine does not poo-poo those questions. He, he takes them seriously. And occasionally he, oh, he hits the mark so beautifully. Like, what happens to the, to the martyrs with their wounds, right? And then he says, well, it's like the wounds of Christ, right? He still has those scars. They don't hurt him anymore. They do him no harm. But the wounds are the wounds of love. The scars are the marks of love. Therefore, they are still visible in Christ's body and in the bodies of the martyrs. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. On the Credo Podcast, from time to time, we dip into a major theologian in the history of the church. And if you've listened before, then you know that Augustine is one of those theologians. In fact, we keep returning to Augustine because out of all of church history, it's hard not to put Augustine at the top of a list if we were to make one. It'd be a very difficult list to make when there are so many giants before us, from Thomas Aquinas to Martin Luther to Anselm and Athanasius. But I think Augustine needs to be towards the very top because Augustine is not only writing polemical works and he's not only operating and ministering in the context of the church, but did you also know that Augustine is writing works that are not just for the church, but in one sense have a global perspective to them? What do I mean by that? Well, Living in the day that he did, Augustine is faced with sometimes colossal, even tragic events like the fall of Rome itself when it was sacked and all of the consequences that that followed, consequences that the church had to answer and sometimes didn't know exactly how to answer. Augustine steps in and in some very profound ways, Augustine gives the church the ability to interpret history as a whole, including their own day, and even certain accusations that come at them as Christians living in a world that is sometimes even hostile. Well, in our Credo podcast today, of course, I'm thinking of Augustine's City of God, this massive work, this work that is both a theology and an apologetic seemingly at the same time, and yet also gives us an insight not only into this great thinker, but into the church during his day. It's hard to think of a better person to invite on the Credo podcast to give us a window into this strange world than Philip Carey. You may know Philip Carey from some of his books and courses. In fact, he's a philosopher with many gifts, a professor of philosophy at Eastern University, but he's also 
really an expert on everything from Augustine to Martin Luther as well. Maybe you've watched or listened to some of his great courses on Augustine or philosophy and religion in the West or Luther on the gospel law and the Reformation. Or maybe you've actually read some of his books, such as Augustine's Invention of the Inner Self, The Legacy of a Christian Platonist. Another book that I just have to mention is his book, The Nicene Creed and Introduction, a fabulous entryway into just Nicene orthodoxy. And then last, I'll mention his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the gospel that gives to us Christ himself. Phil, it's really a pleasure to have you on the Credo Podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you for welcoming me. I'm glad to be here. And Phil, we were just talking about this before we hit record, but you and I also have a friend in Chris Hall, who's a patristic scholar of many sorts. Am I right in thinking that you and Chris uh, meet on a weekly basis to talk about all kinds of individuals from the Church Fathers to Aquinas? Yeah, Chris is an old colleague of mine, friend from Eastern University, where we have both taught. And for many years now, uh, since the pandemic, actually, we've been meeting by Zoom every Friday to originally talk about Aquinas and now talk about just about anything. Um, <laughs> but he has been a president of Renovari, as I'm sure you know, and he likes to have theological conversations with peers as well as, as you know people to teach. And he and I just teach each other by reading together Aquinas and, well, Aquinas teaches us both because he's smarter than both of us, uh, and, and and similarly with Augustine and so on. Yeah, so so we have been talking and and learning from each other for many years now. I just love that. Uh, what a great model and example to others. I hope maybe some of our listeners will hear that and think, well, goodness, I I could benefit from that. Maybe maybe there's a theologian I know or a friend that we could mm-hmm. get together and discuss someone as significant as Aquinas. Now, Phil, I couldn't help but I have to mention one other personal thing, because uh, when I was looking over your bio, uh, it, it has this great line where it says, you're a philosopher, but you're married to a midwife. And so you think uh-huh. about the mysteries of life and she puts her hands on them. <laughs> Can That's you tell right. us about what has your marriage been about and how has uh, that, uh. that mystery worked? Oh, well, right. So I think about the mysteries of life. She puts her hands on them. And, you know, we also raise kids together. When I was a young man, one of my desires, which I didn't quite understand fully, was that I wanted to be a father. And when I met my wife, she was a single mother. And I ended up falling in love with her and the youngster who is now my oldest son at the same time. And that was a way of confirming what love for a woman was about for me. It's about marriage. It's about family. It's about raising children. It's about having a future in which I see my children grow up and I grow old with my wife. And she's part of that, too, because, well, you know, she's part of this network of of midwives. And she goes to to dinner with theologians and listens to us do shop talk. (laughs) And I go to dinner with midwives and listen to them do shop talk. And Uh it's it's good both ways. Yep. Oh, beautiful. Well, uh, Phil, let's talk about Augustine, shall we? Um, sure. Here we have this fourth, fifth century mind who is so significant in these centuries uh-huh. for the church and, of course, has been ever since. I want us, with the limited time we have, to really 
zero in though on just one book that he wrote, City of God. Now, I feel silly just saying that because anyone who started reading City of God realizes this is not just a book, but it yeah. is a colossal treatise that in many ways sets the trajectory moving forward. But it also in, in so many ways gets us right to the essence of who Augustine was and, mm -hmm. and what his concerns were. Now, City of God, for those listeners, maybe they're new to this classic work, it comes at a pivotal moment in history. Yeah. Uh, you think, for example, of this turning point in Rome when Rome is sacked, I believe in 410, Yes, and you have the Goths, and suddenly life is hanging in the balance. And Augustine is not just thinking about, say, what's happening on the ground, boots on the ground, as we like to say, but he's also thinking, what does this mean for the history of the church? How how is the how is Christianity going to survive given some of the ways that Christians are being blamed and so on. So, yeah. Phil, let me just hand it over to you. Can you tell us what exactly is giving rise to Augustine writing a book that is over, goodness, about a thousand pages? Yeah, more than a thousand pages, 22 books long. You know how we like to say that the Bible is not just one book, it's a library of 66 books. Well, in Augustine, yes, 22 books long, it's more than a thousand pages in most editions. Yes, it, something really lit a fire under Augustine when it came to the fall of Rome. And it's it's interesting that it's the city of God. It looks at two cities, he says, right? An earthly city and the heavenly city. The earthly city concentrated in Rome as the great city of the of the earthly world. And then the heavenly city is, is the, the new Jerusalem, the, the kingdom of God, the church in union with the angels who, who are also part of the, the city of God. So you've got this kind of two cities theme. And Augustine is trying to explain to the pagans what's going on with the fall of Rome. And he, he does have to respond to this criticism and this challenge. Why did Rome fall? Well, the pagans say it's because we Romans have abandoned our gods, and, and so many of us have become Christians, and it's really all the Christians' fault because the, the gods of Rome have abandoned them. Mm. And that's the big challenge Augustine has to meet. It's just a little bit like Socrates being charged in, in back in ancient Athens with not believing in the gods of the city. Ah. Well, the Christians are charged with not believing the gods of the empire, and they are certainly guilty as charged, Right. So how do you explain what happened to Rome in this fall? Because just about everybody in the ancient world believes that their gods are there to protect their community. Yeah. And, you know, have their gods failed? Have the Roman gods gotten angry at them because of these Christians? That's the task that Augustine has to deal with, right? What's going on with the fall of Rome? Is it really the Christians' fault? And where is Augustine? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's in his 50s at this point. Where is Augustine in his career? That Let me back and put it this way. What is it, especially that prepares him to give an answer at this point in time? That's an interesting question, because Augustine has already had a long journey in his life. When he converted, or, or rather returned to the Catholic Church, he was in Italy, having fled from Africa where he was growing up. He, he grew up in Africa, which is what, what we now call North Africa, became a heretic. 
right? Grew up in a Catholic household that became a heretic and then had to flee Africa because heretics were not legal. And he ends up in Italy and with a network of heretics called these Manichaeans. And then he returns to the Catholic Church in Italy under the preaching of Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and he learns a bunch of philosophy. And his real aim early on in his career, in his mid-30s, was to start a kind of Christian philosophy movement back in Africa. But he goes back to Africa, and he's now a Catholic and not a, not a heretic. And very soon, he's basically dragged into the clergy. He becomes a presbyter and then a bishop, which means instead of doing Christian philosophy all the time, he has to teach the church, and he has to deal with the Donatist schism, which is a bunch of Christians who are not in communion with the Catholic Church. Then he ends up dealing with the Pelagians, a, a group that ends up becoming heretical. And by the time he gets to the city of God, he's coming back to philosophy in a new way. He's dealing with pagan philosophy, but now he's got all of this ecclesiastical and theological experience under his belt, and he's got a new task. Mm. He's going to address these pagans and say, look, your very best philosophy, which we Christians appreciate, this Platonist philosophy, your very best philosophy cannot achieve its own goals and cannot explain what's really going on. The Christian faith can. And that's the fundamental apologetic. On the one hand, he's dealing with the fall of Rome, which he calls uh, the loss of temporal goods, goods of, of this earth, like you know, a comfortable life in, in a big city. On the other hand, he's dealing with the desire for eternal goods, which the Platonists rightly understand is, is the real goal of the human soul. And he says the Platonists themselves can't deliver on that promise. For that, you need the way of Christ, which is the way followed by the city of God. Mm. So it's, it's a big project combining two different focuses. There's, there's the temporal goods, which don't make us ultimately happy. There's the eternal goods, which do make us ultimately happy. And the Platonists caught glimpse of that, but they can't deliver. So, Phil, I definitely want us to return to this subject of Platonism, because, as you know, in Chapter 8, I think it is, or, or Book 8. Aha, uh -huh. yes. Yeah, that's an important clarification. In Book 8, he spends a lot of time explaining uh, what is the relationship between Christianity and Platonism. But before we get there, you raised a, another fascinating point. And it brings me to this question, how, so, okay, the Christians are being blamed. Mm -hmm. This is a serious charge. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's not lost on them. They're thinking of the early church and how Christians were persecuted severely. So this That's is a right. serious charge. How does Augustine then does something that I think is maybe counterintuitive to us today? He decides, I'm going to begin a tour <laughs> through mm -hmm. history. And That's right. there's really an underlining issue, which is Augustine wants to give us a certain understanding of history mm -hmm. that shows us God's providence. What does yeah. that look like for Augustine? And why does he think if you have a biblical understanding of God's providence, then not just your view of history, but what's happening now with Rome, yeah. that will fall into proper perspective and and maybe even give us an apologetic against that accusation. Yeah, I mean, the City of God is, is typically classified as an apologetic work, although it, it's so rich that it, it doesn't really fit in any category like that very easily. It's divided into two parts, and Augustine explicitly divides it into two parts. 
And the first part is the stuff that we've touched on already. He responds to the pagans blaming Christians for the fall of Rome. He deals with pagan Platonism and says Christianity is the way to get to this Platonic goal that the Platonists can't get to themselves. And then he says, all right, let's tell you about the way to get to this goal, which the Christian faith knows about. Christian faith is like a journey. Augustine talks about it as a journey over and over again, or a pilgrimage, right? The city of God on earth is on pilgrimage, heading for its heavenly home, accompanied by the angels, but not yet fully in heaven with them. And in the second part of the city of God, he actually takes three, three huge steps. Each step is about four books long. The first step is at the beginning, it's creation and fall. And he gives an account of creation that's deeply metaphysical, but also accounts of the fall that becomes really, really important in later Western thought. Then in the second step, he retells the history of the world from a scriptural perspective. In many ways, it's the most scriptural part of the whole treatise. And he, he re-narrates history. And as you say, it's a providential history. God is in charge of history from beginning to end. And he brings it up to the point where the promise of Christ is fulfilled. And all it's mostly an Old Testament history, but then he keeps on glancing at Roman history, the history of the ancient empires that the Old Testament knows about. It all is a history that's heading to Jesus Christ. Mm. And then in the last four books, he thinks about the end, the end in the sense of the telos or the goal or the fulfillment of all history which ends up the happiness and beatitude of the city of God. But there's also judgment, and there's punishment as well as happiness. So he tells that whole story, and he basically re-narrates the history that Romans themselves are living through. And he's saying, one crucial thing that, that he's saying to the Romans is, you know, well, this is implicit, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it explicit. You know that story that Cicero says about how if you have a consensus of all the nations, that's evidence that you have a true religion. The Stoics said that, Cicero said that. Augustine picks up that and says, have you noticed that the Christian religion has been spreading from this tiny little corner of Israel, and now it's shared by all nations? It's, it's, it's becoming the consensus of all the nations. That's the future that we're headed for, which the scriptures have already promised. That's the providential narrative that makes sense of all of human history and all human aspirations. Phil, uh, this is a view of history that really propels Augustine forward. I, th I can't help but think, for example, of the way he concludes City of God by mm, uh -huh. bringing this long view of history to conclusion by saying to these Christians, you have hope. Uh, you're not, this is very Pauline, right? You're not yep. those who do not have hope. You have a blessed hope. And then he turns to the incarnation, the resurrection of the body. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that he starts to, to even answer questions like, will a woman in heaven retain her sex as a woman or not? Yeah. And that gets into all kinds of fascinating questions about what will heaven be like. And uh, right. and, then, and then even the beatific vision itself. Uh -huh. Now, let me ask you this. Why would, why would he end with Christ? Uh, given this culmination, mm -hmm. what is it about Christ and the beatific vision that Augustine sees as not just um, 
say, a comfort in the midst of, you know, Rome throwing these accusations at them, but also as something that would galvanize the church so that in this present moment, even if Rome collapses, right. they don't have to despair. I mean, there's this scenario, yeah. right, yeah. with Jerome in comparison with Augustine, and I find this so fascinating where some church fathers are tempted to despair. They see Rome yeah. falling, it's all lost. Yeah. But Augustine says, no, there's hope. Why, why does he go that direction instead? Oh, my, yes. And, and that really is the task of the city of God, is to point to that hope. And it goes in several different ways. I mean, to back up to where we started, really, I mean, Augustine's own place in history is at the borderline, really, between ancient classical culture and early medieval culture, mm. right? Rome will fall, right? The Roman Empire is is crumbling, and, and Augustine becomes the great figure of the Western Middle Ages. That's who he's writing for, although he doesn't quite realize it, because it doesn't quite develop in his lifetime. But he's marking the difference between ancient classical culture and early Christian medieval culture. Well, how, how is that even possible? Well, again, you have that crucial distinction that Augustine makes between temporal goods and eternal goods. And temporal goods are you know, good, good things that are truly good, but we can lose them. They're perishable. They can't make us ultimately happy because our hearts are restless until we find rest in eternal good, as, as he says in the Confessions. So Augustine is turning our hearts towards the eternal good and saying the temporal goods of politics are worth having. They're even worth fighting for, but they're not going to make you ultimately happy. Mm. And our, our true hope as Christians is indeed the, the beatitude or eternal happiness of the city of God. And that's why he ends it at that, uh, uh, this big, long book. 22 about what the the life in the city of God in the resurrection of the dead is actually like. Uh, and so it, it's, it's fascinating. You, you mentioned women's sex, right? W- women have bodies. Now, Platonists basically thought, well, your soul goes to heaven when you die. You don't need bodies, right? And you take that thought uh, all the way to the end and you get a version of Gnosticism, right? Which some Christians fell into. Augustine's not a Gnostic. He ends up, as he thinks through this at, at the end of his life, he's, I mean, by the time he gets to book 22, he's, he's an old man, and he's thinking the resurrection of the body, which Augustine in his youth had not been big on because he was so enamored of Platonism. He's now really big on that. Mm. And he's saying, you know, Christianity has this full-orbed view of beatitude, which involves the body. So will women still have women's bodies? You bet they will. Because a woman's sex is not a defect or an imperfection, mm. right? That's a beautiful thing to say that, you know, someone like Aristotle didn't say, yeah. right? Our bodies are part of who we are. And Augustine has a new appreciation for that as an old man, mm. <laughs> which he didn't quite have in, in his youth, right? Yeah. Our bodies are part of the perfection and the hope. And we will even see God with our physical eyes, he argues, at the mm. very end, right? Which is striking because... Thomas Aquinas disagrees with him about that. Aquinas says, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to see God with our physical eyes. Right? You think Aquinas is the Aristotelian. He, he, he believes in bodies more than these Platonists. But Augustine is willing to go all the way and say, yeah, we, we see God in some way with our physical eyes, which is something he radically denied 20 years earlier and was so emphatic about that. He actually offended 
a less intellectual Christian and, and had to apologize for <laughs> treating another Christian with such contempt. You think you're going to see God with the physical eyes? You s- please don't be so ignorant. Right? <laughs> and by the end of Book 22, he's saying, yes, even our physical eyes will somehow participate in that ultimate beatitude. Then he's, in order to say that, of course, he has to show why the Platonists are wrong about this. Mm. And they're his conversation partners all the way to the end on, on these issues. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, Phil, I think it's it's so fascinating, too, that the closer he gets to talking about the beatific vision, mm-hmm. he can't help himself. He also has to discuss other things, not just <laughs> like sex, male and female. And uh, there, like you mentioned, he's celebrating the, the beauty of the natural body in a way that yep. he says, well, it'll be a new beauty, but without removing mm-hmm the way God created us. But then he also brings in other things like virtue. I love what he says yep. towards the end where he says, well, what what will be your reward for pursuing mm-hmm. virtue? And he says, oh, God himself. <laughs> right. God will be right. virtue's reward or even free will. Now, this is so fascinating because, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you'll, this is a, a common accusation against Augustine that, oh, well, you know, Augustine, because he believes in predestination, he doesn't have any place for free will. But then towards the end, he says, he says, well, it's the right type of free will. And he right. goes on to say, we will never be so free than when we're in heaven, because then we cannot sin. And what, what could make you more free than that? Right. He has, the kind of, he has the kind of free will that's often called compatibilist or non-libertarian free will, yeah. right? Free will is not absolute or autonomous. That would be, that would be freedom from God, which, mm. is, which is hell, right? It's, it's a freedom to achieve what the free will was given for. It's like the, the freedom of an eye to see or an ear to hear, yeah. right? The eye can go blind and the ear can go deaf, but that's not freedom, mm. something that can happen. So the free will can sin, but that's not freedom. That's like the eye going blind or the ear going deaf. So perfection in the beatific vision, in our, in our happiness in heaven, is going to mean that the eye can't go blind, the ear can't go deaf, and the free will cannot sin. And that inability is a perfection, not a, not a weakness or a failure. And so at the end of, of the City of God, he talks about how perfect freedom is the inability to sin. Mm. Yeah. Now, now – f- Go ahead, Phil. Did you want to add? Oh to yeah, that? Well, one more thing. You were yeah. you, you mentioned that, that. Oh, there's so much to talk about here. <laughs> you know, here he is again dialoguing with these Platonists and saying, "You Platonists, you tend not to believe in the resurrection of the body. But if you were really consistent and you listened carefully to Plato and and even to Porphyry, you would end up realizing that, that true happiness has to involve an incorruptible body. Mm. Uh, you know, this this corruptible puts on incorruption. This mortal puts on immortality, as Paul says. And then in order to carry through with that, he has to then answer all sorts of you know, straightforward, often naive questions. What will the resurrection body be like? And he treats some of these questions with great respect, questions that come from, I think, his congregation, right? Yeah. Ordinary Christians who are saying, well, you know, what happens to someone who dies at sea and is eaten by sharks? Or what happens to their body? And Augustine does not poo-poo those questions. He, yeah. he takes them seriously. And occasionally he, oh, he hits the mark so beautifully. Like, what happens to the, to the martyrs with their wounds, right? And then he says, well, it's like the wounds of Christ, right? He still has those scars. Mm. They don't hurt him anymore. They do him no harm. But the wounds are the wounds of love. Yeah. The scars are the marks of love. Therefore, they are still visible in Christ's body 
and in the bodies of the martyrs. And in some way, these scars, which do not hurt anymore, nonetheless remain with us as the marks of, of love. And that's something that you'll see in the resurrection body. And I'm thinking, that's so wonderful. Actually, and, and the basic principle is this. There is nothing ugly in heaven. So the wounds of Christ on his hands and his feet are beautiful because they are marks of love. And any scar that is like that will still be visible somehow in our resurrected bodies. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of, one of the deepest and most beautiful things that any Christian writer has ever said. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. I, in my copy of City of God, I keep returning to that point, and I've, I've underlined it and highlighted it so many times I can't do it anymore. But <laughs> I, it is one of the most beautiful passages on beauty that yep. uh, I think exists. Now, Phil, maybe we should help our listeners out here for a second, because some of them might be confused. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, some of them might be thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, Augustine is against Platonism, and that's great, because that's what Christianity is. It's, it's completely anti-Platonism. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what does Greek philosophy have to do with Christian thinking and theology <laughs> anyways, right? And, and what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That's right. What, there's that African famous prior line. To Augustine said, yeah, right. <laughs> and you've heard this this type of objection before, and, and so have I. Right. Maybe we can help our listeners out here, because you, you've really helped us in many ways, showing, okay, this is where Augustine is going to depart from Platonism, or, or maybe take that which is true and, and bring it to its, its proper and true meaning with, say, the resurrection of the body. It might surprise people, though, to hear that Augustine has been called a Platonist mm-hmm. because they think of him as a Christian theologian. But right. but right there in the first fourth of the book of City of God, you have book eight. And this is yes. fascinating because after he gives this little mini history of, of philosophy, I'm, I'm just going to quote him a, a sentence here. He says this. He says, if Plato says that the wise man is the the man who imitates, knows, and loves this God, and participation Mm -hmm. in this God brings man happiness. What need is there to examine the other philosophers? There are none who come nearer to us than the Platonists. Now, you read that and you think, whoa, he's, he's saying, it sounds like he's saying that after this survey of all the, the non-Christian philosophies, Platonism is the superior one, and he sounds like he's even saying that Christianity has something in common with Platonism. So, Phil, help us out here. Why? Ah, yeah. What is it about Platonism that Augustine, that, that brings him to a point where he can say this, that there's nothing nearer to us than Platonists. Right. And he's really quite clear about this. And, I, and I've you know, said in, in my own writing, yeah, he's a Christian Platonist. And you know, there are lots of Christian Platonists out there. I think C.S. Lewis is a Christian yeah. Platonist. And of course, Thomas Aquinas is a Christian Aristotelian, and people aren't quite bothered by that. But somehow Christian <laughs> Platonist bothers people. But Aristotle himself was really a Platonist, I think, mm. which is a very common view, by the way, in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, Cicero thought that Aristotle was a Platonist, and mm. Porphyry thought that Aristotle was a Platonist. Well, what's going on? I, I think that the simple version of this is if you want to be a non-materialist and believe that God is not a material being and the soul is not a material being, then Platonism is your basic only option in the ancient world. Yeah. If you think souls are not a bodily thing, then you're going to want to get some help from the Platonist tradition in thinking about that. 
Tertullian, the African theologian a couple of centuries before Augustine, who said the same thing, right? What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Huff, huff. Uh, well, Tertullian was actually a bit of a Stoic in his philosophy, and the Stoics were materialists. So Tertullian explicitly says God is a material being, and so is the soul. The Stoics thought that God was made out of divine fire, and so is the soul. And Augustine comes along and says, eh, you know, I, there's a lot of honor to give to Tertullian, but he's wrong about about God and the soul. Oh. The Platonists are right about God and the soul in that respect. They are not bodily things. Now, then there's lots of things you end up having to disagree with. But you know, some of the, some of the things in Platonism, almost all Christians agree about, right? So do you think that death means that the soul gets separated from the body? If so, you've, you've learned that from Plato, because that's a definition of death that comes from Plato's Phaedo. It's not explicit in the Bible, but you can certainly believe the Bible and believe that that's what death is, right? And do you believe that the soul is immortal? It's Plato who gives an argument for the immortality of the soul. The gospel gives you the resurrection of the body, right? You can believe both of them. Most Christians have. Right? But Christians have been appropriating Plato and the Platonist tradition for centuries and centuries. It's a critical appropriation yeah. because there's lots of things that Plato and the gang get wrong, but there's some things they get right. Yeah. And so one of the things that's going on in, in the, the lovely debates of Christian theology is we think, okay, how far are we going to go with Plato? How far are we going to go with Aristotle? If we want to do metaphysics, we're going to learn some things from Plato and Aristotle. Mm. But we're also going to say, mm, let, we're going to dig in our heels at certain places. Yeah. We're going to insist on resurrection of the body. We're going to say, those Gnostics, right, if you've ever studied Gnosticism, they're kind of like radical Christian Platonists who take a certain side of Plato way too far, yeah. right? Augustine doesn't go there. Mm. So, in fact, I think Augustine goes maybe a little too far with Plato, and I'm, I'm famous for thinking that. And, and But, you know, I'm more with Luther than with Augustine. So <laughs> if Luther and Augustine are having an argument, I'm going to be on Luther's side. And and the, the reason why is Augustine is a bit more Platonist than I like. Mm. Right? But that doesn't mean he's not Christian. Yeah. It's like if you're thinking today about how Christians relate to science, right? Christians can't simply reject science, right? Of course we don't. Now, we, you can go too far in thinking that science tells you about what it is to be human, right? And, and Christians argue about that. How much do we learn about what it is to be human from modern sciences? And, and we, we have to have an argument within Christianity about how much to learn from those traditions. But what's not at issue is whether we're going to learn from the sciences. Of course we're going to learn from the sciences. Right. Likewise, are we going to learn from Plato and Aristotle? Of course we're going to learn from Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. Now, now Phil— some may be wondering, okay, and, and I would just say to our listeners, if if this is new to you, read Book 8 of City of God. Yeah. Because Augustine just lays it out. I, I mean, this is he's very direct. Especially, he has this whole section in there on happiness where he talks about yep. how we have this common ground with the Platonists because we can learn from the Platonists because their understanding of happiness takes us so far to, to understand— yep. uh, God in a way that he's our uh, our purpose and our, our telos and, and the one for whom yep. we've been we've been made and so on and so on. Yeah. He'll get into even Romans one at that point, interestingly enough, to, to say, mm -hmm. well, the Platonists have a, a superior notion of God than the other philosophies out there. Now, this is an interesting point because some may be wondering, okay, why why here book eight is Augustine 
breaking you know his previous his previous progress and conversation to talk about Platonism, but mm-hmm. in the middle of Book Eight, Augustine he makes an interesting point. He says, "Well, the reason that Platonism is so relevant at this point in my apologetic is because." there is a natural theology to Christianity yep. that is to be yep. had, and that could not be more relevant to our current moment. Phil, can you flesh this out a little bit? Why is this natural theology uh, so relevant, given everything that's happening? Oh, boy. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I was, I've was i been rereading Book 8 as I've been thinking about this conversation with you, and one of the things that, that Augustine does is he, he thinks of three different or are three divisions of philosophy that, that he traces back to Plato. There's physics, logic, and ethics. And physics is about what is ultimately real. It's actually something like what Aristotle would call metaphysics. But what is real? What is being? Logic is about truth. And then ethics is about the good. So you look at being, truth, and the good. Those three. And what does that make Augustine think of two books later in Book 11? God the Father is the source of being. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the eternal truth, and the Holy Spirit leads us to all good. So what's going on here? Augustine is thinking that any discipline of study that is really aimed at the truth will in some way reflect the goodness and truth of God, Mm. because it's God's world. So a discipline that's really learning from the world about the way things really are will somehow distantly point toward the triune God who created all things. And who were the best people to, to study these philosophical disciplines in the ancient world? It was the Platonists. Mm. Right? So today, if you think of science, modern science, as a discipline that, that tracks the truth about the world, that is aimed not just at gaining power and technological superiority, but is really aimed at the reality and truth of things, then those disciplines are going to have to direct us in some distant way, at least, to God. God is truth, right? The, the Platonist tradition, the Aristotelian tradition, the, the, the Thomistic tradition, Augustine, they all agree about that, right? Truth is a name for God. So every truth we find gets us just a little closer to God, just like every good thing we find re- reflects the goodness of God. And so that really ought to be how we relate to the sciences, right? Again, critical appropriation, because science can get things wrong. Mm. Uh, Modern science has gotten a lot of things wrong. But insofar as it gets us to the truth, it it gives us a glimpse of of the creator of all things. And that gives us a certain kind of optimism and hope, a deep optimism, because the source of all things is the God who is true and good and beautiful. Mm. Now, Phil, I want to give you the last word as we close out here. How does City of God and all that it all that it means for Augustine in his day, in terms of its case for Christianity, and even a Christian understanding of everything from divine providence to history to natural theology to the beatific vision itself? I mean, sometimes folks may be thinking, well, this is a good exercise in a classical text. And if you go to any number of universities, they'll read City of God that way. And it certainly is. It's not less than that. But I wonder if it's more than that as well. How would you, just for our listeners, as they're thinking about the current pressures of today, the challenges that Mm -hmm. Christianity faces uh, in our own world, 
Is City of God relevant? Can Augustine speak into our context still? That's that's a, an, an interesting question, because to understand the City of God with any depth, you, you do need to care about the ancient context. You need to care about the ancient Roman Empire. It helps to know a little bit of Latin, because when Augustine wants to write beautiful Latin, he writes some of the best Latin that's ever been written. It's better than Cicero, I'll say, as someone who knows a little Latin. <laughs> but the other thing it does, I think uh, City of God is an entry point into reading the Church Fathers. And, oh yes, here's, here's the way to put it, I think, uh, especially if you're thinking apologetically. Augustine is doing something that we need to relearn how to do, because in the evangelical Christian world of America, certain ways of being Christian are not working out. Evangelical theology had its roots in American revivalism. And revivalism, say in the 19th century, people like D.L. Moody, that is addressed to people who live in Christendom, in a culture where it's respectable to be Christians, mm-hmm. where a culture where even the, the sinners know that what they're rebelling against is the gospel of Christ. And revivalism says, come home, you who are weary, you sinners, come home. And even the, the drunkards and the sinners and all those, they, they know the gospel truth is about Christ. We don't live in Christendom anymore, not on the East Coast, not on the West Coast, maybe a few pockets in the Midwest and the South, but you know, TV and, and social media are, are, are rapidly eroding that. So we can't appeal to Christendom anymore, not in the West. So we're going to have to learn how to situate ourselves in the Christian tradition as a conversation not with a Christendom that has disappeared, right? But rather a conversation with our fathers in the faith like Augustine and Athanasius and Thomas Aquinas and Luther and Calvin, who all of them, you know, Luther and Calvin, both of them were deeply in conversation with Augustine and, and surprisingly in conversation with Aquinas too. We need to re-enter that conversation And the City of God is one of the best ways to re-enter that conversation if you haven't been part of it before, because Augustine is part of the DNA of Western Christianity. And you'll keep on discovering that, oh, gee, Augustine is, is so different from us, and yet he's like our grandfather in the faith. You may not have ever met your grandfather. He comes from a strange country. Maybe he doesn't, doesn't even speak your language, but he's your ancestor. He's helped make you who you are. And rediscovering Augustine is rediscovering the Christian tradition who made us who we are here in the West. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts To join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.